This is The Guardian. Today, the Queen's death has intensified debate in Commonwealth countries about breaking with the crown. Will the monarchy now reckon with its colonial legacy? Britain has now been in official mourning for eight days. Flowers carpet the grounds outside Buckingham Palace and thousands of people are facing 20-hour queues in the hope of seeing the Queen as she lies in state at Westminster Hall. And this period of enforced grief extends far beyond Britain's shores. The Queen was head of state of 14 other countries in the Commonwealth, where national mourning is also being observed. To honour the passing of the Queen of New Zealand and realm countries, we move into a period of official mourning. Flags will be flown at half-mast. But the sentiment in former British colonies is complicated. The Queen was much loved and respected, but her death has opened a space to talk about what her position symbolised. Alongside the sadness, there's also pain reflection, and real anger. This commonwealth of nations, that wealth belongs to England. That wealth is something we never shared in. So for us in Jamaica, the monarchy is a harsh reminder of our unfortunate past. I think these experiences reflect the very different relationships to the history of Britain and particularly the history of the British Empire as it has unfolded over the decades of the Queen's reign. For Maya Jasanoff, professor of British history at Harvard University, it is inevitable that countries are reckoning again with the violence and trauma inflicted on their nations in the name of the crown. For Britain, I think, and for many Britons, the experience of these last decades was one in which there was a transformation in global position in which they understood the Queen to be a kind of stabilizing, unifying, to some extent mollifying figure, which has allowed for an idea in Britain to take shape that the period of decolonization was one of, you know, relative peacefulness, relative ease, and around the world, people experienced this very differently. Within days of the Queen's death, Antigua and Barbuda has announced it will hold a referendum on whether to remove the king as head of state. This is not an act of hostility, but represents the aspiration of a people, a long-standing aspiration to complete um, that circle of independence to ensure that we are truly a sovereign nation. And more Commonwealth countries could follow. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, why the Queen's death has divided the Commonwealth and why it's time to talk about the British Empire. Maya, 
The British Commonwealth includes 56 independent countries and 15 Commonwealth realms, such as Canada and Papua New Guinea, where the Queen, well, now the King, remains as head of state. Can you explain, first of all, how that current iteration of the Commonwealth came to be? So the Commonwealth, as it was conceived in the early 20th century, was intended to be a sort of union of, at the time, English-speaking colonies with heavy white settler colonial populations who wished, in some sense, to retain a connection to Britain uh, while, of course, enjoying various degrees of autonomy of their own. And the way that they sought to have that union was through the monarch. And that continued into a period in which the number of nations in the Commonwealth, of course, expanded dramatically, and the kinds of values that they uh, held and sense of attachment to Britain probably changed in various ways. But the Queen, you know, continued to be in charge. Now, one interesting thing is that the, the head of the Commonwealth position is not hereditary. It is, in this sense, unlike uh, the, the British monarchy itself. But But um, the queen let it be known that she wished for her son to succeed her as head of the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth at one of its meetings agreed to do that. But I don't imagine that William will necessarily be the head of the Commonwealth. I see this as a gesture of sort of respect for the queen while at the same time making clear that they may distance themselves in future from the British monarchy. Well, it is often noted that the Queen cared very deeply about the Commonwealth. What role did she play in reconciling countries that endured such violent power struggles? And how did she see her role when those countries fought off colonial rule to win independence? It seems clear that for a certain number of people in Commonwealth nations, the Queen exercised a kind of important, uh, if you will, soft power role. Uh, Her visits and royal tours by both her and members of the royal family were highly orchestrated and staged events. But there's no doubt that the Queen herself uh, envisioned her role as one of uh, strengthening peaceful ties. And as such, I think the Queen was able, as head of the Commonwealth, to step into a a role that drew out only one strand of what the British Empire was all about, as sort of creating a new narrative uh, for what had happened under empire and what empire's legacy would be. Caroline Kimeyu, You're The Guardian's East African global development correspondent, and you've been reporting from Kenya, which is where... In 1952, Queen Elizabeth II's reign as monarch began as she got the news there that her father had died. The royal visitors stepped off into the hot sunshine of Nairobi. No one knew then that the girl who had arrived here as Princess Elizabeth would leave again five days later as Queen. What has a reaction to her death been like in Nairobi? There's been a mixed reaction to the Queen's death from the top political levels. It's been one of condolences. The president called her a towering icon of selfless service to humanity. Before we start, may I ask that we all stand and observe a minute of silence in honor of Queen Elizabeth, who, as you might know, became queen while here in Kenya. But then now when you go online where um, there are a number of middle class educated Kenyans, there was quite a heavy pushback and quite a lot of anger related to 
the expectation of of mourning. Kenya was colonized by by the British, yeah. and being colonized by the British, people have lost their fathers, they have lost their grandparents here, fighting for independence, fighting yeah. for independence from the colonies. They said that the Queen's legacy had been one that had been very, very brutal for Kenyans. Caroline, how has that legacy affected the way the Queen was viewed? Queen Elizabeth became Queen in 1952, just around the time the Mau Mau uprising, which was Kenya's main independence movement, was beginning and taking root at a time when a lot of suppression by British soldiers on people affiliated with the movement as well as the movement itself was happening. The British crackdown on the Mau Mau uprising killed an estimated 11,000 Kenyans and many held the Queen as Britain's head of state responsible. We know that at least 1.5 million Kenyans were forcibly put into concentration camps where they faced all kinds of atrocities, including torture, rape, and, and, and you know, various different kinds of dehumanization. And so as far as the British legacy in Kenya, it's quite complicated and very, very heavy. I mean, the colonization also brought positive things, but again, there's the negativity bit of the losses that Kenya as a people went through. There was a lot of whitewashing and sanitizing of what happened during this period with some investigations showing that uh, there were deliberate efforts by the British to conceal what had happened during this time. The reaction to the Queen depends mainly on the levels of education that a Kenyan might have, although still uh, quite a bit of that history has been erased. So how did the Queen and the UK government managed to maintain strong ties with Kenya, despite all that happened in that fight for independence from the crown? That's that's an interesting question, because what happened too after independence is that a set of leaders uh, took over and ended up replicating some of the power and repressive systems that the colonialists had enforced by the time of their departure. So that's why you'll also see that there is quite a favorable messaging from the political elite, while the response from the public is far more nuanced. Because, for instance, we see positive messaging from Kenya's president, who is part of the political dynasty. His father was the first president who took over in independent Kenya. And so Queen Elizabeth had very strong ties with the leaders that took over in subsequent governments. These political leaders have benefited immensely from the political and economic power, especially as I was speaking with analysts. This is one thing they stress. They have been the main beneficiaries of some of the inequality that stemmed from colonialism. So it seems like it was in the political and economic interests of a few of the elite who retained the power and the wealth in Kenya to stay close to the United Kingdom. But was there also affection for the Queen that helped keep those ties strong with Kenya? Certainly. I think she's had the advantage of such a long tenure and has been deliberate throughout her time about making and retaining those relationships. You know, as far as the Commonwealth goes, it confers certain advantages to the countries involved, such as visa, business, sporting opportunities, and, and that kind of thing. So maintaining those kind of relations has worked previously. So how has the public mood shifted? Is there now a sense that younger people are becoming more aware and that there has been some sort of political and social awakening. 100% before, especially because of the 
uh, torture and dehumanization that just three generations up had experienced, there was less of an inclination to speak up because this could be met by severe consequences as far as any critique leveled. But as we've seen, as subsequent generations have come in and began to question what many people see as uh, lopsided relations or kind of the status quo, you're finding younger people in re-engaging with history. So that's definitely caused a shift in terms of how much people are Um, saying that they want to center their own experiences. That's something I heard repeatedly from uh, some of the people that I spoke with, that they don't want to center um, other people's experiences and other people's pain over their own. Nigan Sinclair, you're a columnist and professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba in Canada. Last week, we saw Prime Minister Trudeau give an incredibly emotional speech about the death of the Queen. She was our Queen for almost half of Canada's existence. Canada is in mourning. She was one of my favourite people in the world, and I will miss her so. Can you tell me, first of all, what was the general mood in Canada in reaction to the Queen's death? Certainly, there was a there's a sense of mourning, a sense of sadness. Uh, I mean, the queen is a as a matriarch. She's a grandmother. She's a, a mother and a, a wife. You know, I'm I'm indigenous, so the people around me uh, take that very seriously. The roles within a family. Um, at the same time, there's also the really complicated legacy with the queen. For indigenous peoples, the queen is not an easy figure to uh, to feel all the time very comfortable with. And why is it so fraught? The run of Canada has not been particularly kind for Indigenous peoples. In fact, during the time of Queen Elizabeth's reign is some of the most brutal times uh, that Canada has ever had when it comes to the treatment of Indigenous peoples. And then, of course, all of the other laws and policies that we've lived under, which still exist today. You know, people would say, oh, well, uh, the constitutional head of our country, the crown, doesn't have a role to play in the running of that country. And that's completely absurd. The only relationship that Indigenous peoples share with Canada is via the Crown, because of our treaties. We've made agreements with the Crown to share territory. Uh, When you have a position of power and you witness those under your power suffering experiencing massive amounts of death and violence, and you can do something about it, and you do nothing, then it's as if you are complicit in every regard. What was in those treaties signed between Indigenous nations and the Crown, and what did they entail? Uh, From 1763 onwards, which is the Royal Proclamation, when King George III said that all of the lands in Canada are his, Indigenous peoples have been making agreements with representatives of the Crown uh, to share these lands. And whether it was way back in the day, the proxy or the representative of of the Crown that was sent to our communities, or whether it's Canada today, which represents the Crown. But, you know, Indigenous peoples take very seriously an agreement that has been solidified through gifts and through tobacco and the promise that our children would grow up together and we would have communities that would live alongside one another. Uh, it is Indigenous peoples who continue that spirit and take it very seriously. So when we go to this, when we have a dispute, for example, when we go to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, we don't talk about Canada that we have treaties with. We talk about that it is the Crown who we have those relationships with. 
Nikan, the Queen made 22 official visits to Canada during her reign. How were her tours still so successful and popular, given that there was so much tension within Indigenous communities each time? And how do you think she rebuffed that tension? In 1984, uh, she came through Winnipeg, and uh, which is where I'm standing right now. And uh, my relatives took it really seriously. I remember being dragged around town and just to get a glimpse of the Queen. So that tells you a lot about the importance of what Indigenous peoples respected about the Queen. She also came in 1970, and there was a, a chief at that time, the leader of the chiefs of Manitoba, who uh, his name was Dave Christian Sr. And he made a speech to her. It has been almost a hundred years since our forefathers signed treaties with Her Majesty Queen Victoria. It is with sorrow that we note that the promises of peace and harmony, of social advancement and equality of opportunity have not been realized by our people. It is my hope that as Manitoba enters its second hundred years, all its people will play a full and responsible part in the administration of the province and in its future development for the benefit of all Canadians whose home this is. And of course, nothing happened. And so uh, on every single one of those 22 national visits, Indigenous people spoke every single time. And yet the Queen just stood idly by. And while she cared very deeply about Indigenous peoples, she often showed up for a lot of photo opportunities. I mean, doing nothing is just as bad as, uh, as the state itself. Well, Canada has also been reckoning with its colonial history for the past few years now. And we've learned so much about how the violent and abusive residential school system scooped up tens of thousands of Indigenous children, took them away from their families, and taught them to reject their culture, language, and identity. Can you tell me about the impact of that and why it's changed national views of the monarchy? That residential school system was run by the state. Children were forced to attend, and then it was delivered by those churches in partnership with the government. And over top of that is, of course, the monarchy. And uh, until 1996 was the last residential school that ran right here in Canada. Uh, those schools were brutal, terrible institutions that instituted trauma within our communities. But it was also the removal of them from their parents, from the land. And then, of course, being taught that everything about their families was savage and terrible. What it did was, is it instituted in Indigenous peoples a sense of shame, uh, which results in addictions and violence and poverty. And then last summer... Unmarked graves began being discovered at the schools that you've mentioned. The gravesite is there and it's real. And if you were to see it, there are 751 flags. The remains of more than 200 Indigenous children were found last week. Some were as young as three. Many and people Indigenous began toppling symbols of the monarchy. Nigan, how have people connected those two things? So right here in Winnipeg, uh, activists toppled two statues uh, that were at the Manitoba Legislature, which is our house or government in our province here. Um, the first was of Queen Victoria, which is the biggest statue. That one took the most amount of energy. 
crowd of about 15 used ropes to pull down the statue late on Thursday afternoon. Now, after it happened, people took turns posing for photos, standing on top of the statue. And then there's a much smaller statue of Queen Elizabeth. They are fueled by an anger that has inflamed generations, downing statues of the Queen and those who went before her. It's important to remember that, you know, nobody was hurt during those actions. There wasn't any violence uh, other than to say that people who had been asking for a statue in downtown Winnipeg of Indigenous peoples, you know, there is no statue of Indigenous peoples in the largest population of Indigenous peoples in Canada. There is only statues of monarchs, of Canadian generals. Uh, and so people take very seriously symbols, images and representations. It's not just enough to have a queen or a king or a prince or a princess walk around the country for photo opportunities. Uh, they've got to do something. If they have the power to, to influence and the power to change and the power to enact things, they cannot stand idly by while a people are in poverty, while a people are suffering, while a people are in a terrible state of affairs. Coming up, why is it so difficult to talk about the legacy of the British Empire and what the future could look like in the Commonwealth? It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kyler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. Maya, why do you think it is so difficult for this subject to be talked about calmly and rationally. I mean, in Britain, a lot is invested in public civility and decorum and, and doing and saying things in the right way. And yet there never seems to be an opportunity in which we are able to talk about the impact and legacy of the monarchy across the world and what the Queen symbolised without upsetting a lot of people. Why do you think that is? I think there's two phenomena that have been able to flourish over the last decades. One of them is imperial amnesia. So the records of what happened 
in the process of decolonization in particular have in some cases been uh, inaccessible due to Official Secrets Acts and those sorts of things. In some cases, they were literally hidden by British authorities uh, at the time of decolonization, spirited away into a secret archive whose existence was only revealed in the wake of a lawsuit brought by survivors of torture in Kenya against the British government. And in other cases, they were destroyed outright as the British left uh, India, Kenya, you know, many other domains around the world. They literally burned records. So part of it is that the story simply hasn't been told. And what has happened in the vacuum, if you will, of this kind of amnesia, deliberate obfuscation in some cases, is that a kind of nostalgia has been allowed to flourish. The idea that the British Empire was an empire of development, an empire of human rights, an empire of laws, etc., can flourish when counter-narratives are not made available. And how conscious do you think the Queen was in her behaviour and presentation and about how her image helped become a kind of glue for the Commonwealth. I think that it's safe to say that uh, the Queen was part and parcel of a global brand of monarchy that was dedicated to using this image in what they hoped were very neutral ways, what they hoped were, uh, you know, ways that would encourage people to project onto that image various sorts of positive emotions, various feelings of sentiment. One of the things I've been so struck by in the last days is the sense that, you know, we sort of feel like we know the queen when in fact we know probably less about her, knew less about her than of many other public figures. And yet the ubiquity of her image was such that people around the world were invited to form attachments, even when there was no kind of, you know, material basis for them. Despite the attempts to make peaceful transitions, a lot of these struggles were really bloody. They were really violent. And I've heard countless times that colonial rule was a long time ago and that countries should perhaps get over what bloody damage was inflicted on them in the name of the Queen. Former Prime Minister David Cameron quite literally said that Jamaica should move on from the painful legacy of slavery. But I do hope that as friends who have gone through so much together since those darkest of times, we can move on from this painful legacy and continue to build for the future. Can you explain why this legacy is still affecting people's lives today? If you look at the the economic circumstances of these nations, if you look at their uh, diplomatic relations, their politics, they are completely overshadowed by a history of imperialism. Bangladesh right now is one of the poorest countries in the world. What is now Bangladesh, the eastern part of Bengal, was in the 18th century one of the richest parts of the world. What happened between then and now? British imperialism. The entire economy and population of Jamaica was transformed by British imperialism. This is an island where the vast majority of residents are descended from people who were brought to Jamaica in chains, in the holds of slave ships, and were forced to labor on British-owned plantations in conditions of appalling uh, violence. And I think it's a luxury uh, for somebody in David Cameron's position to, you know, encourage others not to want not to talk about something which is literally uh, the basis of their history and their nation.
Elisa Hanna, you're a member of parliament for the People's National Party in Jamaica. The Queen is dead, and Jamaica could become one of the next Commonwealth countries to hold a referendum to become a republic. Why? Well, Jamaica wants to rule its own destiny and to make sure that we have our own head of state and to make sure that we are the architects of our progress moving forward. Jamaicans have felt for quite a while now that the being a realm of the crown has not advanced our economic interest or our identity as a people. And certainly over the years, we've recognized that elements of British influence dating all the way back from slavery to the period of Victorianism to just going forward even after independence has not really advanced our country and our people in the way that we think we can advance if we go it alone. And so we want the generations coming for the future to to have a sense of what it means to, to truly be a Republican state. And why do you think attitudes in Jamaica and in other Commonwealth countries have changed? I think over the last few years, you've seen it more up front and centre. It used to be, I think, a casual resentment, I would put it, but no, it's an overt resentment, especially with Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. People were more socially conscious of the things around their lives that were, were affecting them and how imperialism has really kept them back and, and created gaps, not only in their education, but in their upward social mobility, why many people were relegated to poverty. And a lot of it stemmed just from colonialism, whether you were colonized by the British or the Spanish or the French, what you were seeing around the world were people becoming revolutionaries against the system that had impeded their movement for so many years. Something very simple. We can't get British visas visas for ordinary citizens yet. It was Jamaicans and the Windrush generation that helped to build Britain back. You are almost relegated to being some kind of substandard citizen to try and get to a country of which you are not only colonized by, but you're also a realm and the, the monarchy is your head of state. And so there's really this disconnect and detachment in how people feel about Great Britain. Well, Lisa, you were there when the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, now the Prince and Princess of Wales, visited Jamaica on their Caribbean tour last year. Now, that tour didn't go so well. This is our land! Right at the very start in Belize, a protest about land rights forced the Cambridges to relocate a visit to a cacao farm. Newsweek is calling it a royal disaster. The couple facing protests and thrust into a debate about removing the Queen as head of state amidst tensions surrounding Britain's history of slave trade. Slavery was abhorrent and it should never have happened. I do think it's the first time some people in Britain were even made aware of how attitudes in Jamaica have shifted towards the crown and that the history between the two countries is complex and painful. Even William and Kate seem taken aback and unprepared when Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness, in his welcoming address, told them that their visit provided an opportunity to address unresolved issues. What did you make of that? The Prime Minister heard and basically said, you know, you're either um, going to see us as a progressive nation and help us, but we can't continue in this kind of relationship. I think you have a unique opportunity to change the course of your leadership going forward. 
modern day Britain has to recognize that its voice is not as prominent as it was 70 years ago in 1953 in the world. And it really has to know with your new prime minister, Truss, and your new king, how you will redefine your role going forward is going to be a significant question that Britain will have to ask itself in terms of moving forward. Well, Prince William did later express profound sorrow for what he called the appalling atrocity of slavery after the Jamaican Prime Minister's address. Do you think that went far enough? Um, It didn't go far enough because I think um, persons in Britain also think that we in the Caribbean are looking for money. It's not, it's not money. There is a 10-point plan which correctly lays out some of the things that we're, we want to talk about. But the first thing that we want is an apology, saying that slavery was an atrocity um, against humanity and they're sorrowful for it is not enough. What we want to hear is some real remorse to say, I'm sorry what we did was an abominable act against humanity by eviscerating and tearing families apart, wealthy Africans um, from their native tongue. We tore religions apart. We tore, we made Muslims become Christians against their will. Those are the things that need to start as a conversation. And until that happens, there is no real reciprocity and there's no ability to move forward because... You're not speaking, everybody's not bringing to the table um, the real issues that need to go on the table. How hopeful are you that you'll see that apology in your lifetime and that the conversation of reparations will be taken seriously in Britain? Um, I'm hopeful because if, if, you're, if, if we, <laughs> the truth is, if, if Britain does not, then certainly we in Jamaica and other countries in the Commonwealth will watch your country walk alone backward into the future with its leader's eyes closed. Maya, for the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth defined its global influence and helped plug labour shortages at home. But why is it important for countries to remain close to Great Britain, given all that they've gone through? I think the question of why it's important for them to remain tied to Great Britain is one that many of them are asking themselves right now. I mean, I think that uh, one of the interesting questions for the Commonwealth is going to be to what extent it continues to have its foundation in the vestiges of British imperialism and to what extent it begins to be uh, kind of reimagined as a different sort of uh, economic, cultural or diplomatic union we've seen in recent years, for example, of nations from Africa joining the Commonwealth, which were not formerly British colonies. I wonder if, uh, you know, the Queen, as long as she was head of the Commonwealth, kind of sustained that image of the Commonwealth as very decidedly a post-British empire entity, and that with her passing, uh, it will become easier for the Commonwealth to kind of go off in different directions. You know, Britain's global position has transformed so much. I think, you know, in 1950, there was probably greater kind of economic reason to be seeking attachments to Britain than there might be in 2022 when Britain has left the EU, when, you know, China is, of course, an emerging economic giant. The entire picture of global geopolitics and economics uh, looks very different now than it did in the 50s. Well, how do you see the Commonwealth evolving in the years ahead? And do you think there are many more countries that are likely to break with the crown? 
I think that when we're talking about the nations that have the monarch as head of state, we should expect many more to break away. Jamaica has made it pretty clear that that's where it's headed. Uh, There's been talk of referenda, uh, possibly another one in Australia, and so on. You know, we, we talked earlier about imperial amnesia and imperial nostalgia. I would like to think that in the reign of King Charles III, we will see more open discussion about the legacies of empire within Britain itself, because one of the things that this moment, the death of the Queen, has brought into such sharp focus is the really divergent, not just opinions about British imperialism, but sheer knowledge about British imperialism. And so I'd like to think that we can at least now have a somewhat more knowledgeable discussion and the monarchy will not get in the way of such discussions in in the years ahead. That was Maya Jasanoff, Caroline Kimeyu, Nigan Sinclair, and Lisa Hanna. My thanks to all of them. I would recommend reading the series of dispatches from countries across the Commonwealth titled The King and the Commonwealth at theguardian.com. Something else to look out for. We do have a new six-part podcast series coming up. It's called Can I Tell You a Secret? And it's great. All six episodes will be available to listen to on Friday, 23rd of September, but you can still subscribe now. Do that wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Sarah Laniuk. Sound design is by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Huma Halili and Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.